Well, welcome back, everyone. We're ready to start the next half of our program. Thank you all for the wonderful questions and attention for the first part of the program, and we hope to replicate that experience now. So I'm going to jump right in and introduce our next speaker, who is Dr. Monica Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi is a professor in the Division of HIV, Infectious Disease, and Global Medicine at San Francisco General Hospital, and is the medical director of Ward 86, the HIV clinic at San Francisco General Hospital, and the associate division chief in charge of clinical operations and education, and also has major roles in the training program and research activities at San Francisco General and UCSF. She is known for her innovative work in methods for evaluating antiretroviral drug exposure using novel samples, including hair and urine. She has evaluated numerous, has been involved in numerous studies evaluating these methods for measuring adherence both to antiretroviral drugs and anti-TB drugs. She also focuses on issues related to HIV infection in women. HIV in India and presumably COVID in India now as we're seeing their horrible situation going on there and has been integrally involved in mentoring and expanding the diversity in biomedical research workforce, including in HIV. So I'd like to welcome her to, she'll be talking to us uh, today on HIV and COVID-19, the impact of on HIV on susceptibility, disease, and long-term complications of COVID. So this should be a, a real tour de force on what we know now about HIV and COVID. So thank you, Monica, for talking with us today. Thank you so much, Connie, for that very kind introduction. So um, I have no relevant financial disclosures. And today we are going to try to understand the potential impact of HIV on COVID outcomes discuss the impact of COVID importantly, as in some areas in the world, we're getting through COVID on disruptions to the HIV care cascade and speak about that. We will talk about some long-term aspects like the impact of COVID vaccination in people living with HIV and then propose novel solutions to increase our focus back on HIV in the aftermath of COVID. It really is important to remember that those of us who are working in HIV see the, the clashing of these two great viral epidemics of our day. Um, really, uh, it, it, coming upon the June 5th anniversary of the MMWR first report of HIV, um, uh, June 5th, 1981, it will be June 5th, 2021 soon. And um, it was first reported that day that HIV was declared an epidemic in 1985. There are still 38 million people living with HIV, of course, worldwide. And the deaths have been 37.2 million since the beginning of the pandemic. COVID has spread quickly. There have been many cases. The total deaths are 3.4 million since the beginning of the pandemic. And this, of course, was declared as a pandemic on March 11th, uh, March 11th, 2020. So what has been the effect or what have we seen about if you have HIV, the impact of COVID susceptibility and outcomes? And, you know, there's actually, we'll start with an ARS question um, because this was a very important and interesting question at the beginning of the pandemic, um, of the COVID pandemic, but hasn't, I think, come out to fruition. So which antiretrovirals 
in HIV have been studied in clinical trials against SARS-CoV-2. Is it uh, tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, tenofovir alafenamide, lopinavir ritonavir, adizanavir ritonavir, or the combination of TDF and lopinavir ritonavir? Oh, please vote. And so this is correct that lopinavir ritonavir is actually the only one that's been studied, at least in a phase three clinical trial. Um, we are still waiting data from some ongoing trials with tenofovir, and I think it would still be important to look at that question um, as outpatient therapies would be important. Uh, really, are there reasons to think even before we started with this question of what we know now with the big studies, were there reasons to think that people with HIV could have worse outcomes with COVID? The main reasons were really that um, immunosuppression in general, at least um, more severe immunosuppression than are hopefully being seen with our highly controlled patients with HIV was associated with risk uh, with ARDS in other viral infections. And more importantly, um, in the current state of the ep epidemic with HIV now, it's really that people with HIV have an increased frequency of some of the known risk factors for COVID-19 infection, which would include cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, uh, COPD, and higher rates in terms of susceptibility in urban areas of our country, for example, with higher rates of marginal housing among people with HIV. There were also reasons to think that people with HIV could have better outcomes with COVID. One is actually, despite the marginal housing in some situations, um, more of a concern and a, and a staying in place, uh, sheltering in place, which is what we saw actually in San Francisco. We had fewer uh, people with HIV develop COVID than the general population. Uh, and then going back to the antiretroviral issue, lopinavir and adizanavir were interesting, were considered of interest at the beginning because they did block the SARS-CoV-2 protease in vitro, just like they would block in a different way, but they blocked the HIV protease. So lopinavir ritonavir was studied both in the solidarity trial and in a uh, Hong Kong trial published in uh, last spring in the New England Journal and showed no efficacy against uh, COVID-19 uh, to use that as a treatment. Um, HIV, tenofovir actually is interesting because it has that same kind of in vitro docking effect um, on the uh, SARS-CoV-2 polymerase but we never got through a study among healthcare workers in Spain to see if TDF could prevent infection, for example, because um, we started universally masking in hospitals and they were protected by other ways. So um, we are still waiting for a study that is sputtering along about TDF um, uh, as a treatment, at least for SARS-CoV-2. But I do think it was an untapped opportunity because um, TAF is very different than TDF in terms of its um, what is resultant in tenofovir levels in the bloodstream. And TDF itself gives higher levels in the bloodstream that could have had an impact on SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, polymerase. And uh, where are, and, and that will come out when I tell you about some of these observational studies. So what is our current state of the knowledge regarding HIV influencing COVID, at least in the US and Europe? Is it that HIV increases susceptibility to COVID? Did it increase severe outcomes with COVID? Does it done, doesn't actually doesn't seem to have an effect on outcomes or susceptibility? Or number five, does HIV doesn't by itself at least increase susceptibility to or severe outcomes with COVID? Please vote.
So, yes, I think, I mean, there were like questions that overlapped here, but I think it's exactly right that we sort of come down on the fact that HIV itself as a risk factor, and then we'll talk about, of course, comorbidities, doesn't seem to increase severe outcomes with COVID. Um, though we'll talk about a South African study and, and think about uh, patients who are more immunosuppressed uh, and the impact on COVID. So let's go over those kind of larger studies. Um, you know, there have been a bunch of smaller studies, and so I just really do want to focus on the larger studies on HIV influencing COVID. And um, this was kind of early on, but it, it still remains one of the most important studies, at least in um, a resource-rich setting about uh, the the interlap, the overlapping between HIV and COVID. There were in um, the study in the annals in Spain of, of over 78,000 people with HIV who were on ART. They looked at people who were diagnosed with COVID. Again, during this, this was during the spring surge last year. And um, the HIV, at least in that study, didn't increase susceptibility to SARS and didn't actually influence the severity of COVID-19. And uh, it was interesting to look at the table in this annals paper because when they looked at antiretroviral therapy breakdown, antiretroviral therapy regimens, it looked like being on FTC TDF was somewhat protective for severe outcomes uh, with COVID-19, like ICU admissions and hospitalizations. This was thought to maybe represent channeling bias in the sense that TDF is used more commonly in Europe. And could it be that those who are, uh, had more renal or other problems were put on FTC TAF preferentially, so were more healthy uh, on FTC TAF? But it did, this has come out in other studies, this observational relationship of TDF leading to better outcomes. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute in the South Africa study. This was a recent study, not recent, it was actually published recently, but this was really a large study, what happened in New York. Now, the problem with looking at what happened in New York City um, and New York State at the beginning of the pandemic in this country is there were confounders of our healthcare system uh, being overwhelmed and not being prepared for what COVID-19 became. And so in that study, at least looking at the overlap of people living with HIV in the area around New York City, there was a similar rate of COVID diagnosis among those with or without HIV, but higher hospitalization and elevated mortality in those with HIV. But it really was confined to those who had low CD4 cell counts, who had the the, the more severe outcomes. And so that immunosuppressive uh, and not having suppressed viral loads. And that came out in the next study that I'll tell you that was published in Clinical Infectious Disease from public, self, uh, public health sector data from South Africa. A similar finding here is that this was also a relatively large group of overlapping people with COVID and HIV, um, 3,978 with overlapping conditions. And this, there was an increased mortality ratio among those living with HIV, but importantly, and it was about 2.39, but importantly, this far, uh, was far less significant than having more of the traditional risk factors for severe COVID-19, which included diabetes, hypertension, and chronic pulmonary disease. So HIV itself, um, in terms of its impact was less than other comorbidities that we traditionally think of uh, as giving more severe outcomes with COVID. And importantly, just like in the New York study, 
it was CD4 counts less than 200 that were associated with higher mortality at basically the same rate as in the New York City study. So, um, and then uh, they're not, they didn't have enough people with, um, with viral load data to perform meaningful analysis on the impact of not having suppressed viral loads like the New York study did. Importantly and intriguingly, again, mortality was lower in patients on tenofovir disofoxyl fumarate versus a back of irisidovidine regimen um, and gives us the still idea that there could be this impact of TDF on the, on the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. So these are the latest THHS guidelines sort of updating what we think of um, in terms of this uh, review article and uh, of the, of the co-infections. And essentially we've settled on that many people with HIV, if they have comorbidities that are associated with more severe outcomes, that's really the, the biggest risk factor for more severe outcomes with COVID, not the HIV itself. Um, possibly lower C4 counts could have some impact. And really, of course, susceptibility has always with infectious disease been associated with um, an ability to stay in place or an ability to, to all of these sort of overlapping social determinants of health have affected communities of color with both of these infections. Um, and then I'll just leave you before we go on to the next topic, which is uh, COVID on, on HIV outcomes, is that the question of the day uh, at this point with the advent of, of course, the COVID vaccines is really, is there any difference in people living with HIV in terms of response to the COVID vaccinations? This was a paper we published last week on looking at antibody responses after natural infection with SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, in those living with HIV. And although antibody responses were slightly down, actually T-cell responses were adequately preserved in the face of antiretroviral therapy and relatively high CD4 counts. So, um, so it, it will be important to look at if there's any modification that needs to be done with the vaccines, um, like another dose or uh, anything that we need to be concerned with people living with HIV, but the data so far does not show us that people with HIV, especially in the context of antiretroviral therapy and adequate immunoreconstitution, have any differences in their response to COVID-19 vaccines. On the other hand, you know, the impact of COVID on HIV, I think, has been more very concerning. And um, as we get through the pandemic in this country with vaccination, it's time to turn our attention back to this. So what were estimates of decreases in HIV testing from large urban centers in the US um, overlapping with the COVID pandemic? Was it that HIV testing went down a little bit, 5%, 10%, 15 to 30%, 50 to 85%, or did we stop HIV testing 100%? So this is um, this is a sanguine audience. It actually went down quite a bit, more than 15 to 30%. I mean, it has come up now, and I'll show you that data, but at the beginning of the pandemic, HIV testing was massively down uh, uh, as COVID started in this country, about 50 to 80% across urban centers. And, um, you know, it really is this impact of COVID on HIV, the, the treatment outcomes, PrEP outcomes, what... COVID-19 public health response did to increase loneliness, substance use, depression, um, that is the concern of what has happened to our people, our patients living with HIV over the last year. 
if you look at these four pillars of, of HIV control, susceptibility, testing, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and treatment, have we seen impacts on each of those four pillars of the response? And there's no doubt, and this is just data from early in the COVID pandemic, that the overlapping syndemics of mental health, substance use, poverty, and loneliness affected our, our patients living with HIV more in this COVID pandemic because it revealed so much um, of the disparities of who could, who had the means, who didn't have the means, who could, who had people around them and who experienced social isolation and, uh, and also the impacts on housing security and food insecurity. For example, we have had three times in San Francisco the rate of overdose deaths uh, than we have COVID-19 deaths throughout this entire pandemic. Um, and that has been well documented, the uh, impact of COVID-19 and the social, social, the public health response on driving up rates of substance use. Um, and in our case, in San Francisco, resulted in many deaths among the homeless. So what about HIV testing? I mean, there's no doubt that this plummeted at the beginning of the pandemic. This is actually data from Boston at the beginning of the pandemic of COVID-19 that HIV testing decreased by 85%. So did, um, so did not getting, picking up PrEP refills or um, starting PrEP, for example. And how have we managed to mitigate that is the question. Um, and some of that data came out in CROI 2021. Something that we showed from our clinic at Ward 86 is that when we went to a shelter in place model in the city, and we were encouraged at a public health hospital to do shelter, uh, to do telehealth, that didn't work for our patients. Um, we actually uh, insisted on people coming in for viral load testing in and out, and we saw our viral non-suppression rates go up at Ward 86 with a, a telehealth, because this is a setting in which... Um, People didn't have phones, or if they had phones, they didn't have stable places to have quiet conversations with providers. And for many of our patients, telehealth didn't work. And we quite quickly changed back to in-person care uh, for patients who are homeless. We never actually went to telehealth and um, did as much in-person care, actually, as we could during this pandemic. Uh, this was a UN AIDS model at the beginning of the, the pandemic um, about the number of lives that could, was not a prophecy, um, but it was a prediction of the number of excess lives that could be lost to AIDS um, from the COVID-19 health systems disruptions, uh, estimating that there can be a million deaths uh, from COVID, from uh, AIDS next year, 2021, as compared to 480,000 in, um, in 470,000 in two, 2018. I think there was a lot of attempts in, and some of this data was summarized at CROI 2021, of very novel models of delivering care in Sub-Saharan Africa, mobile vans, mobile settings, giving three-month supply of ART. And I'm very hopeful that that innovative models of care that were adapted during COVID-19 in Haiti and Sub-Saharan Africa that were highlighted at the CROI 2021 meeting will have an impact on avoiding this prophecy. Um, but there's no doubt that at least generic ART availability has been down uh, in low, out, uh, low and middle income countries. It actually has to do with the economic shock of the COVID pandemic and fluctuations and increases in costs of antiretroviral um, medications. And certainly not just those in HIV, but malaria and tuberculosis have reported consistently disruptions in care for those three um, large uh, infectious disease pandemics. 
what are some of the ways that we can combat this? Susceptibility is really, um, and we'll talk about some STD testing program from Oregon, but uh, susceptibility is really access to counseling and social services and ongoing substance use treatment and working to combat the isolation. Testing is really about, and I'll highlight a program from Chicago, increasing HIV testing in points of care. If people were coming in for COVID testing, how could we increase HIV testing in the urgent care and the ER setting? Um, PrEP was really, and can be still, about mobile vans and 90-day supplies and phone visits and rapid lab testing. And treatment is... Personally, I think uh, in-person care as much as possible. This is not a population, I think, that lends itself to HA, um, to telehealth as well, except in some settings, um, but the same sort of um, creative solutions. This is, uh, uh, this is a really interesting um, study that was shown at CROI 2021 from the Oregon um, and Health and Sciences University that really showed us that there's no doubt that susceptibility to HIV was still continuing throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, but, um, but that HIV testing and STD testing did not rise to uh, the likely um, needs uh, in terms of susceptibility. Uh, this study really showed us um, that um, before the stay-at-home order, that our our sort of all of our HIV testing in this Oregon um, study was at a certain level. And then during the stay-at-home order, HIV testing truly plummeted. But even after the stay-at-home order was lifted, HIV testing rates to this day um, have not gone back to our pre-COVID-19 pandemic levels, which of course has an impact on what we're going to see um, in terms of po the possibility of new HIV diagnoses. Uh, for example, um, this actually was reflected as well as in STD testing that um, for chlamydia, for gonorrhea, this is actually for chlamydia, this is for gonorrhea, this is for syphilis, that was for chlamydia and gonorrhea, that again, even after the stay-at-home order was lifted in Oregon, that we, that because of this continuing um, non-focus on in-person care, and keeping and also people's own fears of staying away from the healthcare system that we did not go back uh, to pre-pandemic levels of testing. Um, and unfortunately, and this was, I think, the most significant slide from that presentation is HIV diagnoses did go down during the stay-at-home uh, disorder likely uh, order, likely because of um, uh, reduced testing, but even with the more limited testing we did, HIV diagnoses went up quite a bit after the stay-at-home order. So this is the time. This is the time um, as things are going back to normal in the United States to go back to our HIV testing protocols and to think creatively about where should we be doing HIV testing. The same was observed, by the way, for syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. Um, even with the more limited testing, diagnoses were massively up out of proportion of the testing. So it means that, of course, STDs and HIV were continuing. Um, and this is this is really my final point is that COVID led to really a crisis of uh, of our typical responses to other infectious diseases, uh, specifically for those of us on this call to HIV and to HIV testing. Um, I want to kind of end because I thought this was a really amazing study from ID Week in September from the University of Chicago group that showed us something very creative. And this was in the setting where there were many more people coming to the ER, many more people coming to urgent care with COVID-19 
concerns and new diagnoses of COVID-19, but the idea of incorporating HIV testing in those algorithms. Um, they showed that essentially HIV testing really plummeted starting from the spring uh, in these uh, healthcare systems across the University of Chicago system. And uh, this is more in the south and west of Chicago. And so, uh, and routine HIV screening in the urban EDs, but anyone who is coming into the healthcare system with a viral illness or something that even could be acute retroviral syndrome was only screened for COVID and not for HIV. And so their campaign was, they drew a tube of blood, if indicated in the University of Chicago system, as they were testing for COVID-19, and then if indicated, had that blood available to send for HIV antigen and antibody testing. In just the first 40 days of the program, they identified three acute HIV infections in Chicago, um, uh, just in those first 40 days. So acute retroviral syndromes uh, being mistaken for acute viral syndrome of uh, COVID-19. So we can think creatively, not only then, but now about how to increase our HIV testing. And what we've been doing at um, San Francisco General is we have now asked the urgent care and the ER to, to go back to their protocols of uh, standard screening for HIV if a test hasn't been done in the past year. And then um, I getting to this final point, how many deaths from AIDS did occur in 2019? Again, this is before the pandemic, but I told you in 2018, it was 470,000 deaths from AIDS worldwide. And um, yes, so interestingly, you know, there's, ma there's massive fluctuations. You said mostly 500,000. There are massive fluctuations in sort of reporting of AIDS, but actually 690,000 deaths were, were reported in the year 2019 from AIDS. So this concern of what we're going to see in 2020, when we see our 2021 data, which is reflecting 2020, is real. And, um, uh, you know, there is nimble ways to take not only the HIV response and pivot it towards COVID, but the COVID response and pivot it back towards HIV. And um, the UN AIDS declaration did still continue our ambitious 2025 targets of 95% of people being tested, 95% of those who are on uh, who are tested and positive get on therapy, and 95% of those who are in therapy getting to virologic suppression. And we on this call hopefully can turn our attention back. And then I'll just end with a final point that's been a particularly uh, something for me that has been really surprising about our COVID response in the United States, which is a lack of coming back to our HIV roots, not us on this call, but but those who are doing the public health messaging around a non-harm reduction-based approach. Of course, harm reduction, when applied to disease prevention for infectious diseases, is the principle of advising individuals how to mitigate risk, but still acknowledging the real-world conditions, like essential work, like wanting to see others over the holidays, for example, that may lead individuals to take some risk, and advising them within those parameters how to keep safe. And... Um, I think that we didn't take a harm reduction approach in this country. We didn't message kindly. People said terrible things about how, when they were messaging about uh, wearing a mask. And I hope that we learn from harm reduction in HIV, in COVID, 
it, it got reflected in the last week's CDC guidelines on masks. Everyone turned against the CDC. Um, and uh, it, it really is, this is what we learned in HIV, is how to message. So um, hopefully we can keep on doing our work in HIV to inform the COVID response. Thank you very much. And then I'll take any questions. Well, thank you for a wonderful discussion on the impact of COVID and HIV, Monica. And uh, while we're waiting for some of our audience to input some of their questions, um, I'm going to start off with a couple of questions that occurred to me as you were talking. Um, What have you seen in your uh, HIV population related to COVID vaccine hesitancy and How have you, speaking of your harm reduction and messaging concepts, how have you been dealing with COVID vaccine hesitancy in the HIV population that you care for? This is a great question because in a way it's the same approach. Um, The example is uh, the New York Times yesterday gave us an example of the four populations who are still vaccine hesitant in the United States. And um, the headline was actually, here are the people who are holding you back. And I thought that was a very judgmental title on um, that we don't usually adopt in HIV about how we message if someone has legitimate concerns. Um, uh, their communities um, have been, uh, had a traditional medical mistrust uh, and or they can't get to the place uh, to, for the vaccine because they're working and we haven't made it accessible um, uh, or that they it seemed like it was developed too fast. And I think it is about compassionate sitting down with people messaging. So I have talked to many patients who are hesitant. Only one didn't take the vaccine after our prolonged conversation, but it was prolonged. It took about 30 minutes. We went through everything. And it was a doctor-patient relationship, but it wasn't just that. It was um, having the compassion and um, non-harm, yeah, harm reduction-based approach to how we message. We can't be non-compassionate when we used to yell at people about wearing a non uh, wearing a mask, and we can't be. We have to be compassionate about about people's concerns about taking the vaccine. So I I think it's we it's we in HIV who know we should have been put in charge of this entire response. <laughs> well, I, I for one agree with you about that, but it happened, so we're moving on. Yeah. Um, one of the comments from our our uh, audience, there was some surprise that there were uh, no data points in some of the studies that you showed related to obesity and its influence in HIV in people with COVID. We've heard a lot about how obesity has worsened outcomes in non-HIV populations. What do we think about that concept in people with HIV? That is a really great question. It is true that it didn't come out um, in the risk factors for that overlapping pandemics, but let's remember that the two studies I showed you, one was in South Africa, and maybe um, that wasn't actually necessarily reported as uh, one of the um, covariates in the analysis. And then in New York, you're right that it came, didn't come out as comorbidity associated with worse outcomes in HIV. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, I would take your, uh, any response to this that you would have. I, I, I do think that the weight gain that we see with HIV, some um, uh, HIV associated regimens, antiretroviral therapies could be different 
could be different than the weight gain that's seen in typical obesity that has nothing to do with um, the more different types of weight gain. And it's actually, in a way, why we haven't seen poor outcomes with the weight gain that we saw in the advanced study, for example, with Dolichegovir and TAF. We haven't seen, I mean, let's wait, and, and unfortunately, we do need more observations, but there's more predictions that diabetes and other uh, poorer outcomes will be associated with antiretroviral-associated obesity as opposed to reality. I think that's a good point. So I think there's a lot more work to do there. Yeah. Um, just a comment from the audience about um, working with uh, HIV tracking and other services being disrupted at the county and Department of Health levels just because the personnel were so diverted from HIV services to co-related duties. And what is your sense in your setting? Are we seeing the Department of Health people coming back to HIV? Or are we still obsessed with COVID to the point where HIV services remain disrupted? It's an excellent question. Um, we have zero COVID-related hospitalizations in our hospital as of today, San Francisco General. Um, we are still not back up with our HIV testing. We still have a COVID-19 command center where a lot of people are still diverted and uh, no, we have not gone back to the Department of Public Health allowing us to do full in-person care for people living with HIV. I'm, I violated that without telling them at Ward 86, but um, we have. Um, so it's an excellent question. It is up to us on this call to go back to our Departments of Public Health and say, please, please, let's go back to what matters. We had four new cases of HIV infection in women in uh, new diagnoses in the city last week. So I want, I want us to come back to HIV very desperately. And then I think I, we have time for the last question from the audience. Has your organization or anybody you've worked with done any kind of group uh, sessions around vaccine hesitancy? Obviously, having 30 minutes per person discussion about vaccine hesitancy is not really a an efficient use of your time. What have you done around group-related discussions? This is an excellent question. So last Saturday, there was something called the Max the Vax that I went to in the Bayview Hunters Point, which is our um, more Black low-income populations in the city of San Francisco. And we were just sitting there to listen. And actually, it was communities messaging to communities about vaccine hesitancy, describing why there was still hesitancy, because that's the final population in the city that hasn't had high levels of uptake. And we were just there to answer questions. In fact, we didn't even talk unless someone asked us to talk. And so those kind of group sessions led by community, I think, are, are going to be more helpful. Great. Okay, well... We're right on time to move on with our next presentation. So I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Landovitz and thank Dr. Gandhi for a wonderful presentation and great answers to questions.